0: Today's Saturday Classic is a special audience request lots of listeners have written in over the past few years to ask us to do an episode about the student movement known as the White Rose or on Sophie Scholl, who was one of its most well-known members. This was an organization at the University of Munich that was part of the resistance in Nazi Germany. And this is one of those cases where the episode that we're getting all those requests for actually already exists. Uh, it's a 2010 episode by past hosts Katie and Sarah. And its original title was Did Any Germans Resist Hitler? Which makes it a little bit of a tricky episode to find in our archive. You kind of have to know the name to go looking for it. Uh, listener Damon and a couple of other folks specifically asked us to please re-release this as a Saturday classic as well. So that is what we're going to do today. to Stuff
1: You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Katie Lambert. And I'm Sarah Doughty. A few months ago, we talked about Hanna Sönes, a Hungarian who opposed the Nazis by parachuting into Yugoslavia in an attempt to save fellow Jews. She was arrested, tortured, and executed. And this heroic story left many of you wanting to hear more about resistance to the Nazis during World War II. These stories are usually tragic, you know, how could they end well, but they're also pretty inspirational.
0: One of the most surprising of these heroic stories comes out of Germany, of all places, where the Gestapo and the SS kept... Such a close eye on the population. Listening in to a broadcast of Radio London could be enough to get you executed. And it's in Germany, in Munich, actually, that this group of students decide to protest the atrocities of their government and stir up their apathetic countrymen at a great risk to their own lives.
1: And they call themselves the White Rose. But before we get into the student movement in Munich, we need to give some background on what life was like for someone who was trying to resist the Nazi government. And some sources that Sarah was reading kept saying that you can't understand unless you've lived under a totalitarian regime. But uh, we hope this will help a little bit. So this is what you're up against. Nazi indoctrination started in preschool. Children were encouraged to denounce their parents for making derogatory comments about Hitler or about the Reich. And at age 10, boys would register to join the German young people after being investigated for racial purity. At 13, they could join the Hitler Youth. And at 18, they'd be a member of the Nazi Party. Uh, It was mandatory to serve either in the armed forces or in labor details until age 21. Girls did the same thing, participating in leagues that taught comradeship and motherhood. So
0: that's what you're up against in terms of this early indoctrination, but in addition to the Gestapo, every block also has a spy who would note down conversations going on, keep track of who was saying what. So maybe you make a joke to your wife about Hitler and your neighbor overhears it? Uh, next thing you know, you've got police knocking on your door, so dangerous times. Consequently, it's pretty difficult for all but the smallest groups to actually protest the government because organized resistance usually involves a lot of people.
1: Socialists, communists, and trade unionists publish underground literature, and even though the Catholic Church is officially silent, On what's happening, some clergymen do work to protect Jews and the church denounces, quote unquote, euthanasia of the handicapped. We also have the occasional assassination attempt. After the defeat at Stalingrad, German officers attempt to blow up Hitler with a bomb. He was injured and they were immediately executed. But really, the military is about the only group that could be so bold.
0: Because most people who protest against the government have to do it passively, just small measures of non-compliance with Nazi rules. So it's pretty easy to imagine that at least a few teenagers were ticked off by the idea of having to enroll with the Nazi youth and work to fight against that without
1: getting themselves into terrible trouble. The student heroes of our story grew up in the world of the Reich. They were raised in the 30s, so they're fully indoctrinated. Some were even leaders of Hitler youth groups. So how did they turn against the regime? And more importantly, why did they decide to risk their lives to denounce it?
0: Well, a lot of the eventual members of the White Rose meet in the winter of 1938-39 when they're all finishing up their compulsory two years of army service as part of this medic program. Basically, if you had intended to go to medical school eventually, you could finish up your army service training as a medic to get a little hands on work before you start your studies. So most of these kids end up enrolling at the University of Munich the following spring. And we know that students are the most protesty <laughs> group of the population. And well and it's <laughs> no different at Munich too, even though these students really have to wash their backs. They have a lot more pressure than most student protesters would have. Still, though, when, for instance, one of their Nazi student leaders tell them that they'll have to spend their first summer break harvesting the crops in Bavaria, they are very upset. Stink bombs go off in the chemistry building. So you can imagine just these acts of protest still very dangerous in these times, but trying to to make their opinions heard.
1: Later in 1939, when most of the male med students are drafted into the army, they would steal as much freedom as they could, skipping out on roll call or on drill, according to White Rose survivor George Wittenstein. And by early 1942, two med students, Alex Schmorel and Hans Scholl, have started writing leaflets, copying them on a typewriter and distributing them. And Sarah's got the first line from the first leaflet.
0: Nothing is so unworthy of a civilized nation as allowing itself to be governed without opposition by an irresponsible clique that has yielded to base instinct. It is certain that today every honest German is ashamed of his government. So of the first 100 of these flyers that they distribute in mail, 35 are returned to the Gestapo. So this means two things, spies and people who get this very incriminating flyer in the mail get very nervous, and send it right back to the Gestapo.
1: And writing leaflets and copying them might not sound like a big deal. It is. Paper is in very short supply, so buying huge packs of it is very suspicious, and so is buying lots of postage. And think about how dangerous it is to carry such a pamphlet around with you, because if you're stopped and searched, you're done for. But the students
0: at Munich are amazed
1: to to see these pamphlets. Who's doing this? They're
0: wondering, what's going on? The Gestapo are not pleased. And so the White Rose membership starts to grow. And it's interesting that the discipline and order that some of the members might have picked up in the Hitler Youth serves to make them pretty disciplined and ordered when they're fighting the German government.
1: They would graffiti the streets of Munich with slogans like Down with Hitler, Hitler the mass murderer, or Freedom, Freedom. And the initial Munich group expands to students in Hamburg, Freiburg, Berlin, and Vienna. They would mail each other these mimeographed leaflets, and sometimes they would even carry them on trains, which was a task usually left up to the girls. They were less likely to be searched, but they could leave these suitcases full of these pamphlets and different cars. Well, they'd
0: carry them in another compartment because you didn't want to be found. You, You wanted to be separate from the suitcase for as much of the journey as possible. But of course, we also have to talk about what the White Rose Movement was even all about. And was it really true that Germans didn't know what was going on, what atrocities were being committed? As you so often hear, that's usually the excuse for such enormous inaction that happened. Well, these kids know what's going on. And when a lot of the male population of the White Rose movement goes to serve on the Eastern Front as medical aides in the summer of 1942, they actually see some of the atrocities firsthand. Hans Scholl sees Jewish laborers being beaten, bound for death camps, mistreated. He hears about how the Poles are being deported into concentration camps. And others, like Hans's sister Sophie, hears about some of the other policies at church in sermon. So these kids know what's going on. We can assume that a lot of other people knew what was going on, too. Exactly.
1: Sophie gets permission to reprint a sermon against these murders and distributes it to the students. She joins the White Rose after enrolling at Munich and begging her brother to let her in. And many of these members also had Jewish friends who had since been deported. We have to make it clear. They thought that what was happening was very wrong. This wasn't just a, a political protest. This was a very personal thing.
0: Definitely. And so by November 1942, the students who were on the Eastern Front serving as medical aides are back and the White Rose members are more dedicated than ever to their cause and they bring in one of their professors, Kurt Huber, who helps them edit the drafts, rejecting one as too communist. I can sort of imagine this mentor relationship between these students who are probably writing radical things like students do and this older fellow sort of toning it down, making it more powerful, making it a better way to speak to their audience.
1: And they're not naive enough to think that their pamphlets will help topple the government. That's not what they're trying to do. They understand that it's only military action that will end the regime, although they do specifically distance themselves as independent thinkers fighting for Germany. They're very patriotic, and they want to make it clear that they're not puppets under allied control. But while they do advocate sabotage of the armaments industry, Their goal is to improve resistance morale and stir these apathetic Germans into standing up for what is right, letting them know that there are other people who think that way.
0: Yeah, giving people encouragement. And ultimately, they publish six leaflets between 1942 and three with that little break while a lot of the guys are away on the Eastern Front. Four are published as the White Rose, and two are published under the name Leaflets of the Resistance. And it's that sixth pamphlet that
1: really destroys some of the major members of the movement. It's just after the defeat at Stalingrad when the White Rose publishes its sixth leaflet. And here's an excerpt. Shaken and broken, our people behold the loss of the men of Stalingrad. 330,000 German men have been senselessly and irresponsibly driven to death and destruction by the inspired strategy of our World War One private first class fuhrer. We thank you. And another repeated
0: through the leaflet, for us, there is but one slogan, fight against the party. It says that over and over again, something to try to get it get it stuck in the reader's head. And the shoals go to this campus building at their university and they leave stacks of these leaflets outside of the doors of the classroom. They're carrying the whole the whole shebang in this suitcase. When they realize that there's still a lot of the leaflets left in their bag, Sophie takes them up to the 3rd floor. And throws them down a light well. So imagine just all these pamphlets showering down. Well, it catches the attention of a janitor, and he turns them in to the Gestapo. They're arrested, and the barely involved Christoph Probst is actually implicated because Hans has something mentioning him in his pocket, a draft for a later pamphlet. So the three of them are taken into custody.
1: They delivered that last batch of pamphlets on February eighteenth, nineteen forty three, and just days later they're put on trial. The judge is horrified that three nice German kids could have turned to this and is especially disgusted that Hans is a soldier.
0: Well, and that the state has paid for his education. It it just seems doubly wrong to this judge. Propst has a wife and three babies, and he claims psychotic depression after the loss at Stalingrad and because of his wife's difficult childbirth. He's trying to save his life. Sophie explains herself really boldly, though. She says, somebody, after all, had to make a start. What we wrote and said is also believed by many others. They just don't dare to express themselves as we did. And later she actually tells the judge, You know the war is lost. Why don't you have the courage to face it? So she's being incredibly brave and bold in the face of, uh, of I mean, she'll definitely be charged by this judge. There's no other way out.
1: The Shoals' parents try to burst into the courtroom in the middle of the trial, and their mother is told she should have brought them up better. Their father forces his way in and is forcibly escorted out. And as he's escorted out, he shouts, One day there will be another kind of justice. One day they will go down in history.
0: Poor Propst family, on the other hand, doesn't even know that he's been arrested. His wife is still in the hospital from childbirth, and he's not visited by anyone before his execution. Unsurprisingly, the judge rules guilty. The court finds, quote, That the accused have in the time of war by means of leaflets called for the sabotage of the war effort and armaments and for the overthrow of the national socialist way of life of our people have propagated defeatist ideas and have most vulgarly defamed the Führer, thereby giving aid to the enemy of the Reich and weakening the armed security of the nation. On this account, they are to be punished by death.
1: They're executed by guillotine almost immediately. The siblings meet with their parents one last time and the guards allow the three to meet one last time. Sophie is killed first, then Propst, then Hans, who cries out, Long live freedom. But
0: it's not over yet. And the Gestapo arrests three other members later in the year. Alexander Schmoral, who is twenty-five. We should I don't think we've mentioned their ages yet. They're all in their very early 20s. Uh, they also arrest Willie Groff, who's 25, and the professor who is helping Kurt Hooper, who is 49. And some of them aren't executed until 1944. So this second batch of trials doesn't go as quickly as as the first with the Scholls and Props does.
1: Today, they're heroes in Germany for daring to stand up during the country's darkest years. There's a square at the University of Munich named after the Shoals, and things all over the city that are named after other members, and we'll close with another quote from their leaflets. Quote, We seek the revival of the deeply wounded German spirit. For the sake of future generations, an example must be set after the war so that no one will ever have the slightest desire to try anything like this ever again. Do not forget the minor scoundrels of this system. Note their names so that no one may escape. We shall not be silent. We are your bad conscience. The White Rose will not leave you in peace.
0: It's especially
1: interesting that
0: call to not forget even the most minor scoundrels, to know their names so that no one will escape. That's still so pertinent even today. We have an article on that. It's called, Are There Nazi War Criminals Still at Large? And there are, and people are still actively looking for them and looking to bring them to justice. People have not forgotten. Thank you so much for joining us for this